Welcome to The Deep End. I'm Julian Weiser, co-founder of OnDeck. Joining me at The Deep End today is Mike Slaw, founder of Shift, an organization that has built the most significant bridge between the Department of Defense and the startup ecosystem. Defense tech is a big deal. We're just now starting to see it be thought of as a more feasible sector to build startups. Mike might be one of the best people in the world to learn about opportunities to build tech and services that support America and our allies. Before co-founding Shift, Mike felt a calling to serve and joined the United States Naval Academy and was a bomb disposal officer for almost half a decade. Mike's first experiences with business go all the way back to when he was a kid, helping his grandma Betty run her toy store. As a teenager, he became an eBay power seller to generate an additional income stream for their business. In just under 10 days, Mike is hosting the Defense Venture Summit, convening founders, operators, over 100 VC funds, and members of the US military. It's likely sold out as of publication, but if you're interested, feel free to DM Mike on Twitter to see if you can be included. I'll include his Twitter handle in the show notes. In this episode, Mike and I discuss opportunities in defense tech, the history of the sector, what he's learned building a premier talent org, hiring veterans, and much, much more. Are you exploring starting a company? Well, we've got a program for that. ODF has helped 1,000 companies get started and go on to raise over $2 billion. I'm actually recording this podcast intro at our partner Carta's office as they are hosting us during the 19th cohort of ODF, which is happening right now. The energy is incredible, and I'm excited to see what this cohort builds. We've just started reviewing applications for our 20th cohort that's taking place in San Francisco in late January. Learn more and apply at beondeck.com. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Slaw. Mike Slaw, welcome to the deep end. Thank you, Julian. It's good to meet uh, a longtime Twitter buddy in IRL. You know, we never shared this space before, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Totally. Well, listen, man, I, I'd love to just dive straight into it. Uh, the defense sector. It seems like it's something that is getting more and more popular uh, in tech. It seems like it's something that people are starting to care a lot more about. But maybe you could talk a little bit about why defense matters and why we should be excited about building in this space. I think that we're, we're at this moment in time where besides some of the, the acceleration around AI sucking all the oxygen out of the room, it, it, it's a sector that's got a lot of momentum in it right now. Maybe a couple years ago, two, three years ago, it wasn't really an investable category for a ton of VCs, save for some of the OGs that have been building in this space for a while. I think the, the Founders Fund and the, the APC folks of the world, but now we're witnessing what I, th- I think can only be described as this Cambrian explosion of interest. We've, we've got LPs demanding, what, what, what's our fund going to do about this? What's our, what's our perspective? Is this, do we want to go global? Do we want to go in the U.S.? Is it tailored just towards defense? Do we have a broader thesis that it works into, like global resilience at GC or American dynamism at A16Z? And, and the other, I, I think, awesome trend to witness in real time is that there's just a ton of sort of very accomplished second, third time founders that I, I lovingly call them defense curious <laughs> because they're thinking yeah. about uh, what, what does it take to navigate in this space? There's There's a lot of momentum behind it and really for the you know, maybe there's this moment in time, Sham from Palantir talks about this 
from the, the last supper to the first breakfast where you know, the, the defense innovation ecosystem might actually be primed to scale. And I think that there's, there's, there's a number of reasons behind that. Obviously, the global defense market is really large. Uh, if we see any sort of modest percentage shift from the, the legacy prime contractors to more software first or software enabled primes, you know, that you know, presents a radical addressable market opportunity. But I think one of the reasons why we, we haven't seen, let's put all the current events aside, we haven't seen a lot of interest in, in or really the idea that we would see a lot of venture backable outcomes like the SpaceX and the Enderol and the Palantir of the world, because the, the exit opportunities, the acquisition op space, it wasn't that great. The environment prime contractor gets valued at maybe one to two X top line. But you look, you, you don't have to squint too hard, look three to five years into the future, and you can see some of these companies that are going to make it over to the other side, and they're going to want to acquire other software companies to achieve the breadth and the scale needed to, to, to really serve the needs of the Department of Defense. And so if some of these companies make it, which I think are going to, Epiris and uh, Shield and Scale and Anderol and, and IDME, there's going to be an exit environment that's really, really compelling for a lot of venture investors. And you know, I'm, I'm putting aside, obviously, we're in an environment right now where there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot that America specifically is up against. Yeah. So I think that's, that, that's why I see some momentum right now. It seems like people more than ever before really want to have an impact, want to do something that improves America, um, improves the situation in the world. And I think that people are starting to look maybe beyond the things that are the easiest things or the things that are, are maybe ones that maybe play to their backgrounds. Uh, and they're trying to expand a little bit more. You see this happening uh, with people trying to build uh, in energy and climate tech. And I think that this is also what's happening here with defense. Maybe we could maybe we could talk a little bit specifically about you know, what you're doing at Shift. It's described as a military talent exchange. I would love for the people here to be able to understand why you started it and where you are today with it. You start, started the company after serving in the Navy for a little over seven years. I was on the bomb squad, which is basically like your technical expert. You get to embed with all sorts of military units of all shapes and sizes, big and small, special and conventional. And before the, my time in the Navy, I helped get a different software company off the ground and so going in, I knew I wanted to serve. I was in high school uh, during 9-11 and it, it was just this, you know, like I was such a, you, know, you hear the story a million times, but you, you just, something in your bones tells you, if not me, then who? Uh, and many, many other vets have the same sort of <laughs> origin story, but I had an opportunity to start a tech company. I knew I wanted to start another technology company, but it was really the time serving on active duty where, you know, working with some of the, in the bomb squad, some of the most creative problem solvers on the planet, some of the most nonlinear thinkers and the folks that I was embedded with or, or attached to, I was like, these are the exact kind of people that you want on your side when you're trying to do something hard, when you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, when you're in a resource constrained environment. I mean, <laughs> we're running a, a battalion of like 12 bomb squad platoons all over the planet and we didn't even have slack <laughs> so, <laughs> talk about the resource constraints right so maybe that, that was, was a benefit the, maybe maybe that was a good thing i don't know <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I was, well i was always, i was always maybe we'll get into this i was i was really 
personally frustrated with the software and the tooling Mm. at our disposal. There's always been this fluency gap in technology between the public and private sector. Unfortunately, I see it's getting worse with how Hmm. technology is accelerating right now. But for me, despite all of these unbelievably great qualities, and I saw a bunch of future founders and the folks that I was serving with, you couldn't overstate how narrow somebody's view was that they could create impact after the service. Like what kind of role can I do after the military? Or they can lead some sort of a change uh, that can essentially maximize their potential as a technologist in the military. And so that, that was really the, the, uh, the original idea in starting Shift. Let's build more pathways for vets to get into the technology space, join venture-backed startups. That's really how we got our start uh, in, in early days. And that's a little bit of my backstory. When people think about what they're capable of, what they think are, are sort of part of their opportunity set, the things that they could do, let's say, after time spent in the military service. How do you think Shift actually can fundamentally change people's trajectories and make them realize, hey, there are other options out there. You have so many capabilities based on your experiences that you could apply to other domains. How, how do you think about Shift in that regard? The, the thing that you nailed is when you are in an environment where it, it's, it's siloed, I think this definitely applies to military service. Uh, and, and probably other professions as well. I, I grew up being really interested in technology. I ended up starting a startup. And then when you get into active duty service, and I think the same is true, like my, my, my wife started out as a healthcare provider, saw the exa- exact same thing in her. And there's these other professions where it's really high stakes and you really feel like you have to become a, a specific version of yourself. That was definitely true for me in the military. I almost feel like I forgot that that technologist inside of me because it was like we, we are training to do a specific thing uh, to be able to uh, be this, you know, really focused and specific version of ourselves to not let our, our teammates down and ourselves down, our families down. And then you come up for air and the outside world, the private sector, you know, the military is like college in the respect, like you, you can stay for a while, but, you, you know, you got to leave sometime, but nobody stays forever. And you know, I, I always thought about it like a speeding train. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you can see it from the outside, but you, know, you you just don't know like what the meal car looks like or what people are talking about in the inside. One of the things that I think we've done well at Shift is this like recognition of you. If you want to go cross sector, you want to be in a different part of the workforce. You can you can read all the blog posts. And you, and you can you know, follow the right people on Twitter. You can listen to the all the podcasts, but there's really no substitute for getting inside. A lot of that anxiety is around, okay, what I'm losing pace with my peers in a different industry. Uh, I, I don't know where my skills fit. And I think that we're moving so fast right now with how like what skills are required to be good at a job in the workforce. Like that, that's like changing exponentially. And so any sort of like static skill translator or recommendation engine, uh, it, there's literally no substitute for getting inside and doing the thing. And so I'm really, really bullish on, uh, on, on a very wide definition of fellowship programs, externships, internships, just to, like if you're in the military and you just get a little taste of private sector experience, it's like it it, it, it just clicks in, in a way that, that isn't possible you know, when you're on the outside looking in. Uh, and so my advice is to 
whether it's some sort of a formal program or it's a, you know, you just get a chance to work on a project with somebody in a different industry with different tools and different norms. That's the thing that can really, really speed people up, especially if they're set up for success to create impact quickly on the other side. On the the other side of that, as an employer, you get to see the tremendous output and the tremendous sort of transferability of skills that these people can bring to your team, to your company. Just really incredible, both as independent contributors and also as leaders to see to see what these folks are capable of. So it's it's so awesome what you're doing with Shift. Maybe we can transition really quickly here to talk about what's happening with the Defense Venture Summit, which is coming right up. And hopefully it's the first of many. It seems like such a good initiative. Maybe you could start off saying what it exactly is and sort of how you how you decided to go about launching it. Of course, yeah. I mean, we we got our start at Shift uh, essentially launching and, and putting a legal framework and uh, a, a public-private partnership with the military for folks who are leaving the military uh, essentially afforded them the opportunity through a program called SkillBridge to work full-time in a private sector company during their last three to six months of military service. And we're really focused on this back in like E18, there was maybe only eight military installations that had these skill bridge programs out of like 800 bases globally. And so we came up with this framework to essentially put people on temporary duty orders so they could embed full-time. DOD is still paying their salary and benefits with the goal of more seamless transitions into into the civilian workforce. And so we, we made a lot of these placements of VC firms and VC-backed startups. And you know, we, we, we became known as this, this bridge into technology for folks who are exiting military service. Fast forward to the beginning of 2020, and we had Will Roper, the acquisition chief of the Air Force at the time, was, was really interested in uh, you know, essentially prototyping a fellowship for folks to go get that similar type of private sector experience uh, but then bringing bringing that expertise back into the DoD, and more mm. importantly, bringing these really important relationships back into the DoD. And so, uh, with the Air Force, we prototyped the Defense Ventures Fellowship, and this is a really fast-paced, six-week-long immersion at a VC firm or a VC-backed startup. Uh, startups that range along the spectrum of like verticalized defense, <laughs> V2, going to be a prime contractor like an Anderol or a Shield, all the way to the the, the defense curious folks like, hey, we've got a great no-code software. We've got a great cybersecurity software. What's the defense use case? How does mm. how could this apply in the Department of Defense? How might we tailor our product so it fits the requirements or it solves a problem for the military end user? And so over the past three years, we've embedded 450 active duty reserve, guard, DOD, civilian, military members across ranks from E4 to 06, all the services, uh, Space Force, Coast Guard included. And we've we've embedded them for these defense ventures fellowships at 150 plus VC firms, accelerators, angel funds, startups. And, and that, that those 450 people alongside some of these defense ventures hosts, which it's, it's like Jake Chapman at Mark VC, Shield, Scale, uh, Chaos, and you name it. Like it's, it's, a, it's a really valuable industry network for the DoD to have relationships with and to have connectivity with. So you've got a 450 alumni and you've got 
hundreds of people in the private sector who have worked side by side with these folks and who put their time into scoping a project with them and, and, and essentially delivering this uh, really fast-paced experiential learning uh, fellowship program. And now we've got this critical mass of folks who, uh, you know, the, the fellowship itself, it's an awesome experience. But what we realized over three years of doing this is it's just like a super high-touch, in-depth, maximally effective onboarding experience into a really powerful network that can help you move faster on the, on the problems that you're looking to solve. It's, you, know, you might only be the only person in all of like, you know, Fort Liberty who cares about the future of cybersecurity, but you plug into this network and now you've got, so you, you found your people. Same thing. I mean, <laughs> I take it, the same thing happens with, with, with ODF. And it, it's like, I don't have to, with you and with this network, talk about like just how powerful it is to find your people when you're fumbling around in the dark. That's what we do for folks uh, in the military who are either really worried about like we're going to lose the ball on technology or, or they're just like the, like the, they're looking for a way to you know, plug back into that power source that got them excited to serve in the first place. And that's what we've seen in, the, in some of the, some of the outputs of the program and some of the results. The whole goal is to just rapidly increase, increase technical fluency in the shortest period of time possible to get people back to their jobs. Man, it's super cool. I mean, we've collaborated in the past with ODF and Shift. Hopefully, we can do a whole lot more of that in the future. I'm personally trying to make it to this summit. Maybe you could give people a little bit of the details about the summit, what to expect. I'm personally trying to make it out uh, to the East Coast for this, but maybe to give people a little bit of a high, highlight reel here. Yeah, yeah. I think what, what we realized is like the, the special thing isn't the fellowship, it's the network. And we got to convene this network uh, at least once a year in a really first-class way. The events picked up a little bit of momentum in the past couple of weeks just because we've got a lot of new investors in the space. We've got a lot of new founders coming into the space. And so we're, we're bringing everybody together uh, in, in Navy Yard, D.C. On, on the 15th of this month for essentially like an all-day summit. And then on the 16th, it's a, a little bit of a, an outdoor offsite, unstructured time, spend making really deep relationships. On the list, we, we've got 102 uh, RSVP'd individual VC and private equity firms, like 102 different firms. We've got uh, members from over 100 military organizations. This is the, the 82nd Airborne, the SEAL Team 6, the Kessel Run and beyond. And then uh, just, just a, a couple hundred of the Defense Ventures Fellowship alumni are coming back to DC for this. And then a ton of founders and operators that are actively building in defense are trying to figure out, okay, how do I plug in and meet more people across the military? On the 15th, I'm, I'm just really grateful for like the speaker slate, the agenda that's coming together. We've got uh, Catherine from A16Z. She, she's going to kick us off with a keynote. Uh, we also have, I don't know if you know, folks should definitely follow John Coogan from Founders Fund. Oh, yeah. Yes, awesome. a, 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 a very sick YouTube channel. <laughs> One of the best content creators out there. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Scrappy in this where we didn't have any outside funding to do this and then it took on a mind of its own. So we're not able to live stream it this year, but hoping to be able to do that in the future. I don't know mm -hmm. unless some, a sponsor comes inbound, but sure. the, the John's going to take us through you know, the, the history of the intersection of VC and defense. Like the, a lot of the innovation 
in America used to come from DARPA. DOD used to be a huge driver of an innovation, creating things like the internet and things like that. Mike, I'd actually love to, to, to interrupt, interrupt here and actually go, go in that direction really quickly, because a while ago you were talking about how people in these various uh, sectors uh, within the DOD are essentially wonder, worried about getting left behind technologically. You talked about wishing you had Slack and, and feeling like the technology was lagging behind what's out there in the world for consumers and for businesses. Uh, but as you're also saying, DARPA, all of these initiatives were essentially what gave us most of the, the core technologies that we have today. So maybe you could tell folks a little bit about what happened and what we could actually do to, to get, things, get things back on track. You know, I, I think about it through the lens of, I guess, different eras. So we had the, the beginning of things, and this is like post-World War II all the way to the late 70s, the post-World War II tech boom. There was, I, I can't speak intelligently about it, but like the, there's just major collaboration between Stanford and DOD with the integrated circuits, semiconductors. Then we're in the midst of the Cold War. There's a nuclear arms race, space race, satellite tech, all sorts of like espionage and intelligence advancements. And then there's this same time, this like American manufacturing boom taking place, aerospace, automotive, electronics. And then that, that was, uh, I don't know, the, the beginning. And then it came to this crashing halt in the late 80s to early 2000s. We've got the decline of American manufacturing and a lot of outsourcing to China. There's a lot of uh, defense industry consolidation taking place in that point in time. You can look at look at the Last Supper, this meeting that went down in 1993, where essentially like the duty is like, we're, we're going to consolidate y'all and we're going to make these things called primes. And then a, quite a bit of an unfortunate amount of defense aversion in Silicon Valley. And you look at the Project Maven, you look at HoloLens, some of these companies didn't want to work on defense. Hmm. And so we're, we're, we're now in the hopefully what uh, <laughs> the, 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 the sort of like it's coming back era right now. There's a VC boom. You've got uh, really interesting, extremely well-funded, I guess not necessarily all, but it's like you've got investors at all parts of the capital stack that are really interested in what's happening at the at the very earliest stage, a ton of seed funds and pre-seed investors, a lot of whom have military backgrounds. Obviously, you've got multi-stage folks who are in the mix that are either doing their own build programs like a 8BC or, or and they've got you know, Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz. And then even at the later stage, like the SIT, uh, looking for five big growth checks a year. And so there's a bunch of momentum right now. And, and there's this, well, it's always like the, the age old, uh, like question of like, can the government or maybe the DOD specifically, are we actually able to move fast? Are we actually able to innovate in the absence of a crisis? And we're going to have to find out later because like we are moving fast right now, but that's you know, probably it's because it is an actual crisis. The, the reason why the military wanted to establish this Defense Ventures Fellowship in the first place was because for the last 20 years, we've been not fighting against peer adversaries. It's been a low-tech conflict. It has been mm -hmm. counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, putting your hands in the dirt and pulling IEDs out of the ground. Yep. The next 10 years or the next couple decades are actually going to be defined by high-tech 
conflict with peer adversaries. And the, so the fulcrum of that pivot from low-tech non-peer to today, the fulcrum is technology. And the, and the, the fluency gap is an enormous problem. And sort of at the same time, we're facing in the military these historic recruiting and retention challenges as well. And so the our goal with Defense Ventures is to get right at the center of, of, of some of those major trends that they've been around for a long time, but they're really coming to a head right now. I feel like when people talk about technological stagnation, they typically talk about it from the perspective of the economy, right? And people's livelihoods and that sort of thing. But they, they rarely talk about the other side of it, which is our safety, mm-hmm. our ability to be competitive as a nation, our ability to be leaders. How do you think, how do you think about that? So there's those two parts to it. Perhaps there's, there's many other parts as well. But how do you think about that juxtaposition around stagnation? Well, I mean, from the, when you're serving in the military, many people get incredibly frustrated, incredibly worn down. Uh, when they encounter uh, excruciating bureaucratic hurdles. And it's like, you know, people leave because like the projects that they care about aren't just moving, they're just not moving forward. Uh, or, or they get anxious about, okay, I'm falling behind my peers and I have no idea where my skills are going to fit into the workforce. But the what, what I witnessed firsthand, but then also see like a new dimension of it today is there are military organizations that move really fast, that have you know, fewer bureaucratic barriers and, and they, they, they are uh, operating <laughs> with, with urgency at all times. But when I think about the, like the tech stagnation problem, I think it's, it's not a secret. Like it's really, really hard to work with the DOD as a private sector company. It's hard to work with the US government as a private sector company. There's been a sort of like, maybe we are primed to scale right now, but it's a 3 million person organization with hundreds and thousands of, of individual units and organizations with many hundreds of folks who are, I'm the commercial engagement lead for this unit or that unit. And it's my job to interface with the private sector. It, it's It's like almost impossible to sort through if you're a founder, like, should I be spending my time here or should I be spending my time there without really understanding what's real and what's not without understanding, like, this is a, the type of customer that I want to be working with or, or, or somebody that I can grow with. Um, there's just, uh, there's quite a few barriers, 80 cents on the dollar is going to go to, goes to a prime contractor historically. And so there's not a lot left for startups and the ones that, are trying to, to enter the space. Yeah, I've been yeah, trying to build a program within DOD for almost four years, and I'm not even at the point where I don't know what I don't know yet. <laughs> so that's, it, 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 it's just so big. I think that's part of it. I think that this might be a good time to talk about the, yeah, I think you've described it in the past as like an exploratory path that you've taken with shift over the years. I think it's really useful for founders to hear from someone who's a little bit further along in the journey. A lot of our founders, a lot of our listeners are people who are in the early days of exploring starting a company. You've been on this exploratory path. Like what have you learned from, from taking that exploratory path that maybe you would impart to folks who are just earlier on and, and, and figuring it out? 
Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that there's, I, th- I think I saw some name brand podcasters talking about like the secret of podcasting success is just to not quit. Just keep going, <laughs> right? ride the wave. Yeah. You know, we've tried many, many ways to turn veteran hiring in, into a venture scale business. And we've, we've been fortunate to have a bunch of customers that have stuck with us over the years, but it's part of the exploratory path is one of my mentors once told me like, you, you got to forget about the past, Mike, and like, like how you got here, or what wrong decision was made, who decided this and what's, what's wrong with them. You just got to be really clear minded and really honest, brutally honest about the position that you're in today. And then if you're able to do that, then you're able to think about, okay, well, this is what my top priority is, or these are the only three things I should be working on. And I should be checking in with myself or checking in with my coach next week. And those three priorities, I should have made progress against them. For for me, at least, and I think it's it's probably different for you know many, many other people, I I, I went into the military uh, because I felt called to serve. I went to the Naval Academy for undergrad. My roommate in, in grad school was uh, Blake Hall, who was just getting out of the army and he's a decorated army ranger and still the CEO of IDME today. And then I met, I mean, I think about like the people that I got a chance to serve with. Those are the people that made me who I am today. Like it was just like a really formative special and enduring experience for me. And so to be close to it and to feel, still feel connected, that's the thing that makes it a lot. It's not easy to keep going, man. <laughs> but that, that, I mean, when, it's, when, it, when you feel like it's in your bones or you feel like you just don't want to live in the world with this problem persisting, those are, those are good reasons to keep at it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, on deck, uh, we've been around for for quite some time now. We've had a lot of ups. We've had a lot of challenges. And I think that it would be a lot easier to throw in the towel at any point that you have a, a challenge if you don't actually really care about the thing or care about the problem. The other thing is it seems it seems like you've really stuck to focusing on solving problems for a very specific type of person. Uh, and instead of kind of like sometimes you see people when they're building startups, they're just like changing who they're building for all the time. And there's like trying to find the right person to build for versus finding the person that they really care about building for. And then just and then just iterating around, like, how can we actually solve a problem for this person that we care so much about? And it's very clear that in all of the things you do who you care about and how you and how you try and serve them as best you can. And and the needs change over time, right? So you need to change how you solve their problems or address their problems. Completely. A big turning point for me was when we were asked to compete for this contract that would allow us to start the Defense Ventures Fellowship. I was like, that that's not a great use of focus right now. We don't necessarily, I don't want to be a government contractor. I've got enough on my plate, but you know, I was, I was convinced to the contrary that, Hey, y'all can do something that's really important. That really matters. You can turn potentially like if this all works, you can turn technology adoption, which is DOD's Achilles heel today into potentially a defining strength. And so that, that, that got me motivated, but really it was like getting to wake up and work with these first cohorts of people who saw like a PDF flyer 
and they left their military unit in Germany, flew to the Bay Area. And the first cohort was in February 2020 in person. And so we went through it in the midst of you know COVID. And then they went remote. We, we were able to prototype this in a remote telework experience. And But it was getting to work with the active duty service members who, who really cared. And to see them take, not just like see their tech fluency improve, but improve like by a step function. Like they went from a place where they did not have access to having access to getting at whatever problem or whatever person in the tech industry that they wanted to. And so for me, it, very similar types of people and same, similar DNA, uh, but it was, it was this feeling that uh, we were doing something that was, was, was like incredibly valuable, but we were really good at it. And it, it, it's a, that's the thing that I'm always looking for is obviously I could also call this unit economics, but it's like, like, what's the thing that we can do that is relatively easy for us to deliver, but is perceived as tremendously valuable from the other side. And then, and so like, not going to lie, like sometimes when we were starting a pre-defense ventures and we were working on a veteran hiring program with a company, it, we, it would be so much work. It would be so much effort and it would be perceived as that. And I think that's the, um, the thing, I think the thing that I've learned is like, so long as you really care about what you're doing, it does make it easier to, to, to take the long journey. I think a lot of founders, I mean, don't necessarily wrap their head around like, this is legit a five to 10 year, really let's call it 10 year commitment. If you really, at least. Really in yeah. it. And so, but, but the second part is like really be, you know, being super like brutally self-honest about like, I should be delivering something that feels pretty, pretty effortless and it should be perceived as, uh, as super high return on investment from the other side. I think that's the spot we found ourselves in now. And, and at this moment in time where there's a lot of momentum around defense uh, technology and, and defense investing, we've got the opportunity to build a really special network uh, and, to, and to keep bringing these two sides close together when what's, when what's happening is that they're starting to diverge a little bit. So we're going to try to hold on for dear life <laughs> and pull them back in. What, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of the idea of do the thing that looks like work for other people, but feels like fun for you. Yeah, And, and, it, and in some ways it's still going to be really difficult and it's going to be hard uh, and, and like time consuming. And there will be times where it's a total grind, but at the end of the day, it's like actually fun or a lot of it is. And that, and that other people are, will look at it. They'll be like, I can't believe that this person chooses to spend their, their time working on this or like doing this sort of thing. So, so that that's, that's awesome. One thing that you touched about, touched on, uh, earlier, like a little bit about the people who shaped who you were. Maybe you define them as like your heroes or or people that that you your contemporaries that you've learned a lot from. I'd love to hear more broadly about your heroes, but I'm I'm actually really curious because I did a little bit of research before we chatted about how uh, how your grandma Betty shaped you. <laughs> That's an easy one. Yeah, no, I, whatever. I, I uh, you know, she was an entrepreneur. She operated a retail toy store in Lansing, Michigan for 54 years. And she, she got her start by bringing a, a couple of high-end dolls and bears to a, to a tea party. 
And she'd go back to the bank and get a $25 loan, sell some more $50 loan, and then worked her way up to founding Toy Village in <laughs> Lansing, That's Michigan. Awesome. And I've, I've moved around a lot growing up as a kid. And I lived with Grandma Betty for a while. The toy store was ingrained in my DNA. And, and a lot of the things, she she would host this annual garden party where she'd bring together all of her customers. And there was this like tremendous community. And I would run the cash register and the raffle <clears throat> and do all these things where, you know, if I was staying at her house or I, I, would, I was with her, or I happened to be there, like I'd pick up the phone and, and take orders and go see if we had something in the storeroom. And it's, it's so that running a small business with my grandma uh, and with my dad, it, w- it was just like a hugely impactful experience for me, sort of around like the turn of the century where, you know, eBay and Amazon were creating these, it just didn't make it viable to have a retail toy business in the middle of Lansing. And, and one of the ways that we kept it going for another uh, several years until I went off to college is I learned how to sell on eBay. That's how I learned HTML and CSS. And you used to be able to customize your MySpace totally. profile and stuff back in 99. But uh, yeah, I was power seller on eBay when I was 15 years old. And Grandma Betty was essentially like, we have this whole inventory and anything you sell, we'll, you'll, you'll get a cut. But you know, for me, it was really about this, like, it was remarkable today. I actually had a friend recently who was just like, you know what, I'm focusing on this skill that I don't think a lot of people think about, but it's like, I've never made money on the internet. Like I, I want to tr- prove to myself this. I was like, that's amazing. Like it's easier yeah. than it's ever been. But like that, I was really young and I was like, I can make money online. Um, and and I think that was really, really formative for me because it was, it was just like this it felt existential. It felt like it was a family business and wasn't going well. But, but technology, the thing that was killing us, the secondary market on eBay and Amazon was actually our path out and, mm-hmm. and, our, and our path to sustaining a little bit. Yeah. So she, she, she's that, she's somebody that, uh, you know, and it's a quiet of, of, of right after COVID and you're all of a sudden you're like at home after riding on the BART to the, <laughs> to your office in San Francisco for like years, uh, you're like, and I had a lot of time to reflect and I was like. It's like that uh, that Don Draper quote about like nostalgia, how it's actually like something that's painful that comes back to you. Where for me, I, there's people that have this outsized impact on your life, and you don't always realize it in the moment, and you, you realize it like years later when they're not around or they're, they're not part of your life anymore. And so it's like <laughs> it's like that's the, the happy part about it for me is like, it's been, it's, you know, it's like this tremendous, I'm like, I am becoming my grandma Betty. Like I'm a salesman. I'm an entrepreneur. I host these community gatherings. It's, this is not people buying dolls and bears. It's defense technologists and a bunch of like radical VCs. So uh, that's part of it. And then also the folks I serve with in the military, it's like you get all shapes and sizes in the, you know, bomb disposal community. You get the 19 year old that dropped out of high school and is like kicking your ass on like nuclear physics. And you're like, <laughs> where'd you come from? And you get like the the ex-Olympian swimmer in the pool next to you. And you're like trying to like, you're getting graded on how fast you can swim 500 yard side stroke. And you're like, I'm this Olympian here. And this is like a, a God child, man child over here. And so I feel like I stood on the shoulders of giants. And I felt like the the, the thing that I could do was to help people with their careers and just be a nerd on their performance evaluations and you know, try to get them promoted. 
but then also just simple things that when you've been in the world of technology, like a, an Excel spreadsheet tracker for who's going to go on what training mission next, like can save people an additional 10 trips of being away from their family if you just make it efficient. And so those are some of the things that uh, I think about. It's it's really interesting to hear about the uh, that that understanding of like wow you could actually make money online and and <laughs> having that first experience could be so uh, foundational for people and I hear a lot I think it was uh, Lauren Zelf who was an ODF founder who who also was a power seller on eBay when she was a kid it's unorthodox but it's pretty common for people who don't necessarily fit the mold to get some of their first uh their first experience entrepreneurial experience selling on eBay. Yeah. It's 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 super <laughs> cool to see. And I I'd love to maybe on that note because you don't necessarily have like the more orthodox path of getting into technology and I don't either I went to music school. I'm I'm super curious to hear a little bit more about how you got into tech, like how you got into like actually building a startup. Because I think that that would be useful for other people to hear who maybe you're like, I don't know, I don't necessarily fit the the startup mold. It might be good for them to hear a little bit of your perspective and your experience of how you how you made this transition into tech. It certainly started making my first dollar online. There used to be this, uh, speaking of the music stuff, I, I there used to be this website called Harmony Central. And mm-hmm. it was like a basically like a massive verticalized like Craigslist for people that wanted to buy and trade gear online. And so I used Mm -hmm. to send guitars like as a 16 year old to some guy or gal in California and we'd trade a Strat for a Les Paul. And so (laughs) I might like that one, but uh, no, it was essentially that was around the turn of the century. And then when, after my time at the Naval Academy, I I was really focused, sort of like lost that, 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 that sense of the technologist inside of me, I got turned back on to it through a, um, you know, a professor, uh, Nico Mele at, at the Kennedy school. Uh, he was part of the, the, like, sort of, he was on like Howard Dean's technology team and really brought like the gov tech wave. And, and so he got me into buying and selling domain names. And it was like, there was this like recursive iteration that had taken place in technology where all of a sudden now it wasn't about HTML and CSS and it was about Ruby on Rails. And so I was like, oh, wow, this is so much easier to create a web application with different states. And I can actually go on to this thing that wasn't quite Upwork yet, but like a directory and, and find a, a dev shop <clears throat> that did Rails in Estonia. And they can they can move fast with me and they can coach and they can they can do things when we're trying to build this prototype. And so part of it was like very project-based and like just getting into a project and, and like committing to it. I think that's part of my personality. I think a lot of other people feel the same way where it's, it's, it's sort of like, it's really hard to start or where do I focus my time? It's like, just get on a project and like, just, just put a website up. And so, but it was like, it was so much easier. Like all of a sudden this iteration took place and I was like, it's a fundamentally different world than we lived in at the turn of the century. And then you fast forward to went down the rabbit hole in the military, became a different version of myself technologist went poof (laughs) came out on the other side and i was like since i went into the military in you know 2010 like we didn't i got out and around and came for air like 2016 and then into 17 and was like this is like there was no crypto there was no ai was nothing data science wasn't a job it was like an academic discipline yeah there was definitely no like uber eats and things like that 
And it was like a completely, another iteration took place. And now we're, we're seeing that these, like these iteration cycles, like compress, like I was just thinking about it, like, Hey, that, that Ruby on rails web app, that was like the back end of troop swap that now is IDME. Like that took us a year to build and three devs and, uh, like 80,000 bucks. And I can, a machine will help you work through that on a weekend. It's crazy. It's like, like the amount of like, there's like, there's like layers of abstraction from building that didn't exist before, but you can, you can actually put your hands on things that work and you can put real things in the world where you, know, you don't have to squint too hard where it's like, I've just been wrong about how fast every of these like recursive iterations is going to take place. Like you, you, you look at folks who are doing things like talking into their computer and have a fully functioning web app in 30 seconds. You know, it, relatively soon, it's like, I don't know if we're going to be necessarily interested about competing on product risk anymore. Hmm. Like if I can just say, hey, I want a Slack, but it has this feature and not that feature. And then the machine spits it out for me, then I can be as close to it or as abstracted away from that process of that thing coming together. I think that there's, that's another driver in, in technology right now where it's like people actually looking maybe in the near future more towards not product risk, but operating risk. How well can we execute? How small can we, how small of a team can we have to create this like tremendous impact? And so that's, I think maybe it's like the long-winded answer to your like, what's the path into technology? But it's, it's, it's been this like winding relationship that today I will tell you, like, like I'm more geeky, geeked out on tech than like the first time I put that AOL CD-ROM into my computer and, you know, in 1999. I was like, "Whoa, we're on the internet now. This is crazy." So, it's 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 a it's a special time in defense. Really serious and like what we're up against. Like, make no bones about it. But you know, with that happening, and with what is happening within the art of the possible. Not, it's not even a state anymore. It, it's an art. Those two things happening in concert uh, have, have me pretty geared up for what the next decade holds. It feels like the uh, number of excuses that would prevent somebody <laughs> from starting something or building something, building initial MVP, getting something out there into the world, they just keep falling away. Yep. It might have taken months or half a year, and now it's going to take a couple of weeks might have taken tens of thousands of dollars. Now it's costing maybe hundreds at the most. All of these costs are coming down. The timelines are coming down. The ability to go out there and make something, it really just comes down to a drive to do it. And obviously there are some really, really difficult problems out there and ones that are capital intensive and time intensive and 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 not trying to uh, belittle that because those are going to are going to take time and, and money and uh, and significant effort. But the ability to like actually build something and get out there into the world, it's never been a better time for that. So it, it's a pretty it's it's a pretty exciting place to be in, and it's only getting better. Yeah, it's uh, the cost, the time, the the number of people that are needed to accomplish something that, that, that really does change the world or, or really does change a lot of people's lives. Like it's, it, it's really hard. I guess the way I think about it is like, it's really like pretty easy to wrap our heads around compound growth and compound interest and what your 401k may or may not do over a long period of time. It is like impossible for us 
many of us to wrap our head around exponential growth. Exponential growth, that's what's happening with uh, skills stability in the workforce right now. In a, like a, every, if you, it was a 10-year period, then it was a five-year period, then it was a two-year period where the skills that people needed to be proficient in, to be proficient in their job, they shifted by 40 or 50%. And it took 10 years for them to shift. Then it took five, then it took two. And now it's, it, it feels like, <laughs> like what's, what, you know, what do you need to be able to do to be good at your job? Like sometimes it feels like that changes like monthly. <laughs> and so like, or wow, I've got this new workflow or I've got this new thing that completely. And so I think that's exponential growth. I think that's, that's the thing that, uh, you know, that, that like, it, it's a very special moment in time where it's like, it's never been more accessible, but you gotta, gotta have these like people around you that care about the same things. You have to be able, you gotta know what good looks like. If you got those two things like cost, it's just effort. It's, it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it's free. You got to dive in. Th- man, this has been great. I think if I if I were to share a couple of takeaways here, it's that you have built just this incredible bridge between the DoD and the VC tech ecosystem. It's just incredible. And it's not just a bridge of bringing that talent into the VC and tech ecosystem. It's about actually taking the learnings and the technologies that are being created and then bringing them back to support our efforts uh, at home and abroad. And I think that there's also the thing that you've highlighted is this incredible momentum right now in defense tech and just just all the things that you're doing across shift, across defense ventures, across the upcoming summit to really make an incredible impact and help people understand not just the opportunity, but also how they can get involved. Would you say that you have any sort of like parting thoughts for the listeners, many of whom maybe have thought about defense tech, uh, but maybe haven't actively pursued anything there yet? Maybe they they have some trepidation for some reason. Do you have any parting thoughts for them uh, before we log off? I think I think I think you nailed it, Julian. I really really appreciate the chance to get some spend some time together. Hope I get to see you in a couple of weeks. But if not, we'll do a defense venture summit in on the West Coast. And I just uh, I was 12 years in California, in and out of the military, uh, before moving out to the the national capital region recently. But I think it's the you, you for folks who are considering building in defense. I think you have to keep in mind that you're not alone at all, and your efforts are welcomed and they're appreciated. There's this, it is awesome to witness the trend in real time of founders that maybe they're first time founders, or, but really I think it's seeing a lot more of like second time and third time founders are like, I'm, I'm going to go in, I'm going to, I'm going to build something in security and safety and defense. And just know that like, if, if, if that's you, uh, that there is this wave of other folks who are trying to figure out the same things. It's a hundred percent something that's happening in before our eyes in real time right now, and I say the efforts are appreciated. The, the 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 military looks at the private sector like again like the speeding train that's going by. It is, it it's really easy to to reach out and to connect in meaningful ways in authentic ways with active duty active duty service members with leaders of military orgs. But I, th- I think that it's. Um, 
there's a lot of folks in the military that are just looking to understand where do they fit? Like what's even happening in the private sector? Like I can't even understate, I've made this the takeaway, like you can't understate how siloed the military experience is. Even in a place I was, I got stationed in San Diego and I spent time out there and it, but it was like, there was very little to no connectivity with the outside world when you got your day job, you got deployments and you have to do train and do all these things. And so I look at, uh, if I could just, all right, humor me just for a second, Julian, I'll read you. Here, here's some of the firms that I uh, have really appreciated partnership with who have hosted our fellows, number of fellows over the years. Like th- th- these are awesome early stage and, and, and mid-stage VC firms that have hosted a number of fellows know exactly, uh, not necessarily exactly how to navigate the DOD space. That's what we're all trying to figure out, but they have real connections and, and they are actually like meaningful relationships with the military. And this is great for, for listeners because everybody's probably curious, like who are the types of people that we should be talking with as we build our, our businesses? So yeah, please, please read the list. Yeah. Of the firms that probably like who, who, who have, we've worked with most closely and have hosted, they got, they have like eight grade A relationships. Some names you've heard of and some names you probably haven't. 8VC, A16Z, Academy Investor Network, Alumni Ventures, Bedrock, uh, believe it or not, Bain Capital Ventures hosted a number Mm -hmm. of our fellows over at uh, Decisive Point. It's just amazing things happening with uh, Tommy and crew up in New York. The the, the good folks at, of course, General Catalyst and Paul Kwan and Alexa first in. And then a few other folks, Lavrock, Lightspeed, making big moves right now. Mark Ventures, that, that's the one that Jake is, he's like in terms of VCs, he is like the VC bridge. Great. Yeah, <laughs> like Jake, Jake Chapman. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. gives the best VC 101 for military folks you've, you've ever heard. But, you know, I, I, I could go on and on. There's, I, I, I tweeted about this. There's 102 firms that are coming out to the Defense Venture Summit in DC on November 15th. We're going to do this again, uh, assuming it all goes well. It actually is a lot of work to, to put it together, but oh, we're Events are tough. To... <laughs> yeah, all but right. the, I mean, the, the, the payoff is it's en- enormous. Like when it's yeah. like the special thing you're trying to do is build a slow network that makes a big impact over a long time horizon. Amazing. Mike, so good to chat with you today. Uh, thanks for all you're doing. It, it's clearly something that the world needs. And thank you for being a leader here. Appreciate you, Julian. Thanks for uh, for going from longtime Twitter buddy to, to, to podcast friend. I appreciate you and everything awesome. y'all are doing. Hopefully see you soon. Take Hi. care. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at see you next time, beyonddeck.com.